Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Evan Tyndale. Evan and I have gotten to know each other over the past couple of years, and we hung out at Berkshire, had a good time. At least I did. No, I think he had a good time too. I digress. Anyway, Evan is a really interesting guy, and he's an ex-poker player, went to MIT. I pinged him because I wanted to have a conversation about thinking about bet sizing and portfolio management. He was willing to do so, and I'm really glad that he was because I, I enjoy talking to him a lot. So without further ado, none of this is financial advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. Thanks for listening. All right, everybody, this is going to be a good one. Thrilled to be joined by Evan Tyndell of Byream Capital. Uh, Evan is a very cool guy. I've gotten to know him. When did we, when did we meet? Like probably a year ago, and then we actually met at Berkshire. Yes. But yeah, yeah, I think yeah. I did something stupid like pitch you all teeth, and you're like, no, man, I'm good without the leverage. And uh, you were right, and I was wrong. Well, Comcast hasn't been doing so well lately in terms of stock price. So uh, we'll see how, how, I mean, yeah, right to not be an Altice, I guess. But sometimes when, uh, when blood comes for a sector, all you can do is try to hide. Yep. So do you want to give a little bit of your background and uh, how you got into investing? Sure. Um, so I went to MIT and there I uh, l- learned how to play poker from some friends. It's sort of the cliche, like MIT gambling. Uh, everyone always asks me if I play blackjack. And I, you know, I try to explain that like <laughs> poker is just a way better game to make money at because you're playing against other people. You're not like trying to play the house where you're going to, you know, at best have like a 1% edge. You're, you're playing against drunk idiots from the, that are, that are coming from the blackjack <laughs> table. And <laughs> so, yeah, w- played poker, uh, started playing poker at MIT and was making a decent amount of money doing that. And so I, I was kind of toying with the idea of, of going on, uh, you know, go, doing various trading jobs uh, uh, on Wall Street, but decided that I would rather make a similar amount of money and not have to go into work and do it from anywhere and travel. And because I was playing all I was playing all online. How many uh, hands would you be playing at once? It depends. Sometimes I would like, you know, be like grinding six, five, you know, four to six tables of like $1,000 buy-in. Um, so like five, 10, five, 10 blinds, no limit, $1,000 buy-in. And then other times I would be like playing, you know, one or two tables of like $5,000 buy-in. So it just would depend huh. on like what the good games were going at that, at that moment. Um, and, you know, because d- different games require a different amount of attention. And, you know, sometimes there might be like one, usually there wasn't like, there wasn't even five games of $5,000 buy-in like going on the internet. So, you know, you would just play one or two and focus on um, on that if that the, the, was the best game. So it just depends. Is there like a sweet spot of people that have, I mean, I know there is, but how would you think about the sweet spot of people that have enough money, but no skill? Uh, I mean, just in general, the games tend to get more difficult as you go up in dollar amounts um, with, with some exceptions, but just because like the really bad players, usually there's like a relationship between like the, the, the net worth of the person and like how reckless they're willing to be in like whatever limit game. So, you know, yeah, some, that guy that, some guy that's worth $10 million sits down at a 
$5,000 buy-in table and like just can, you know, is going to blow, could blow 20 grand and like not think twice about it. And that's not everyone, obviously. Most people, even 90% of people that are worth $10 million still still think twice about blowing 20 grand. That's probably how they made the 10 million in the first place, right? But <laughs> yes, this but, there, is true. but there are some people that don't think like that, right? Um, but uh, but yeah, so the lower limit games are always a little bit crazier just because, you know, I mean, the average person, like just anyone can sit down at a $50 buy-in game and go crazy for a few hands because just it's not going to change their, uh, you, know, what, you know, whether they can put food on the table, hopefully. Um, and so, yeah, it, I mean, although that, that being said, th- there would sometimes be like, really like, like if you're, I mean, I played mostly online, but th- so it's more, it was more obvious when this would happen in, in person, but like, we're like a really big, like whale, like would just come in and sit at like $2,000 buy-in or $5,000 buy-in and just do like absolutely outrageous stuff. Um, like I, I, I've actually played poker with Dan Bilzerian. I don't know if you know. Um, oh yeah, I know him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's pretty. Yeah, he's got like 28 million Instagram followers or whatever. Yeah, he. I was once at a table where he. It was a. It was a nine person table, so you can play poker with ten people. But um, a lot of the tables in Vegas are nine. Ta- are nine nine handed. So it was at at the Bellagio and kind of like the not the really high limit play area, which has like a like a glass wall around it, but just like the slightly higher limit where you have to step over a step that's like this big <laughs> it's not really a barrier but like it feels i don't know why they do it um but anyway we were in that area and at a, at a nine-handed table and uh playing five thousand dollar buy-in and dan bilzerian walks in with like just like a stack of i mean he had twenty five thousand dollar chips and just like a stack of them and the ta- everyone at the table was like yeah this is a ten-handed table now that's like what's happening now like like we're gonna let him sit we're gonna like scoot over he's not gonna have a or someone at the table is not gonna have like a proper like drink holder you know (laughs) yeah we we don't need to drink for these next couple hours folks you're right exactly so we all kind of moved over uh and he sat down and he's interesting he's he's not he's not dumb by any means like at the poker table at least he was uh but he was just he was just pretty reckless, and so it, it was he was a quite good player to have in the game. And yeah, I, I, I've heard that he claims that he would kind of like loot, not necessarily do that well in the casinos, but like win a lot of money in some of these private games with some like real idiots, um, which could be true. I have no idea. There's definitely he definitely wasn't the dumbest. He was far from the dumbest player I've ever seen sit down at that table. So it, it, it's possible, but you know who knows. Um, but there was actually a hand where I have a picture of this on my phone somewhere. Um, I think it's actually in a flicker, which probably is dead by now. Um, <laughs> where there's a photo of him. We were, he like convinced everyone at the table to just put out $500, like just as like blind. And we did this like blind hand where like everyone like reveals one card at a time where not, no one has seen their cards yet. And there's no like betting, but you just go around until. And then you you know it's Texas Hold'em, so three cards in the flop, and then everyone's like turning over their own cards like in in order around the table, and then whoever like has the best hand at the end just gets like five thousand dollars from the middle because it's like ten handed. And when we're while we're doing this, like people start to like come over like to like see what's going on. And so I have a picture of Johnny Chan, who's like he was in the movie Rounders. I don't know if you remember, you know who that is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like nineteen, probably like nineteen ninety four World Series of Poker champ, like main event champion. 
Um, he was like looking, he's like, there's a photo I have of him looking over Dan Bilzerian's shoulder at his cards to be like, what is going on at this, at this table right now? <laughs> so well, those uh, are fun times. Yeah. So, all right. So we got on a little bit of a little different. Track. No, no, I like it. Cause yeah. I, you know, I'm I, it, all right, let's get into investing, but I find it an interesting background that you bring to the table. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of, um, there, there is a lot of overlap and sort of like different, different concepts, uh, with, with, with poker, um, that we can get into. Uh, like the main one being that like people just like in investing, obviously people trade way too much. Like they just, there's just bias towards doing something. Like people can't just like sit there with their 10, like decently priced stocks and just kind of like go on vacation. Um, and in, in poker, it's the same thing. Like the main problem that 90% of people have is that they can't fold. Like they just, they're there to gamble. Huh, that's interesting. They're, they're, they're there to gamble. They're there to play. They're not there to sit there. They're there to play, and so they so they they're 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 calling raises with five seven or three seven or whatever, and they just lose all the money. They get in a lot of trouble that way. Um, so yeah, so I, I was making some money playing poker, uh, very stupidly living in New York City, and because you know when you're making six figures as a poker player in your early twenties, you just think like, I I could have lived anywhere. I could have lived at home in Florida and just like banked all that rent money, you know, like. Uh, <laughs> I mean, why would you though? You're young. Uh, yeah, I was young. I had friends in the city. Um, it seemed like the right thing to do, but it was definitely pretty, uh, pretty silly. I, I don't think I took like now I go to New York and I take the subway. But back to the, when I was like, when I was 21 and like making, you know, at the, what at the time was a good amount of money. Like I, I took cat cabs everywhere. Yeah, I always. Well, taxis, <laughs> you know, young people aren't the smartest with money. You're not. Yeah. You're not alone. And like when you're gambling every day, I mean, it's actually a, a cliche with poker players because, you know, they're, they're, you know, you're gambling every day. And like part of what makes you good is your ability to divorce yourself mentally from the, the value, you know, the, like, it's like not, you're not like, Ooh, I'm betting I've got to call $2,000. You're just like, okay, what are the odds here? Like, what are that? Like, what is the, what are the pot odds I'm getting? And like, how likely am, am, am I to win the hand? Huh? Do you think that's helped? I mean, that, that skill has definitely got to translate. Totally. Yeah, it, it, it does. Because I mean, obviously, in investing, you can't be like, Ooh, I'm investing $5 million in this, like, I better be like scared about it or something like it's just you just have to make the best bets at all times. So th there's that aspect. But what I actually think is almost like more important is um, the necessity in poker of always updating your perceived odds of the situation at every point in the hand. Because like you can, yeah, you can start the hand with, eight. this is another thing that people get way wrong um, in, in, in poker is they're not willing to, to you know, there's, it, it, there's a combination of like sunk cost fallacy and, uh, you know, probably and some other biases that, that feed into this, but they're just not willing to update the probabilities as they go along usually. Like, like if they have aces, they're just, they're seeing them to the map, like, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter what the action is, like how many people are raising after the flop. Um, they're just, you know, they, they, they're not willing to update the probabilities based on the new information because it's like, it's, it's sad. It's a sad thing that they have to fold aces, right? Like that's like, I, you don't get aces that often. Like you can sit there for three hours and not get aces. So to fold aces is very sad and most, and most people just can't do it. And like, I think similarly to investing, it doesn't matter like, how a like 
how cheap the stock seemed when you first bought it. You know what I mean? Or, or, or how good the business seemed, right? Like if you have new information, you have to, um, you have to update the probabilities. And I mean, the, the, the thing that's really hard in investing and, and I wanted to talk about this later, but we can, we can just get right into it if we want to is the hard thing about investing is there's a second factor, which is the price is always changing. It actually doesn't matter. It actually doesn't matter if you uh, if you're now like the, the the thesis you had in the uh, in the beginning is no longer valid because what matters is the thesis relative to the price actually. And if the price has changed a lot, then you know the the, the thesis need is is that's required to make it work is different. You know, it's like if a stock stock trading at ten times earnings and stock trading at thirty, I, I feel like this gets lost a lot in investing. Like a stock that's trading at 10 times earnings needs a different type of thesis than one that's trading at 30 times earnings. Like if it's trading at 30 times, I need to hear about like, uh, yeah, industry growth rates, market share, like TAM, like all that, like margins, they need to be growing. Like it needs, you need like a lot of things to go in your favor. Where it's a, if it's at eight times earnings, you just need the business to not decline. You just need like their current customers to stay their current customers. And, uh, you know, the problem is when something starts to go awry, there's another bias, which is investing, um, which is not wanting to let go of losers because there's always this hope. It's called the disposition effect. There's always this hope that like it can, things can turn around and like the mind is wired to try to like... Because it's not like a, it, in, your, in, in, in your mind, there's this bias towards like it not being a real loss if you haven't sold it yet. <laughs> so people tend to not sell things when they should. And so people try to fight. People try to fight against that with the heuristic of uh, always sell a broken thesis. It, so that's how people try to fight against that. You say, okay, well, if the facts change and I and like I have to have a new thesis, then um, you know I just sell because what are the odds actually that like out of all the stocks in the world, this one that you were already wrong about is now a good purchase? with completely different set of facts and that you're not just succumbing to, um, you know, to just dis- the disposition effect where you're just, you just don't want to admit that you were wrong. Uh, so yeah, like, yeah, that- I think, I mean, the, uh, the one thing that I would say though, is if you're buying a stock for eight times earnings, uh, you do need the current business to not go away, but um, you also need the capital to be returned to you, right? Like there's gotta, there's gotta be some alignment of uh, management and uh, minority shareholder outcomes, right? Because otherwise, you can lose all the theory in reality. Yeah, I think that, that that's definitely true. Although, um, I feel like that is sort of equally true for growth stock for stocks trading at thirty or forty times earnings. Because, like, okay, yeah, uh, you know, they're going to have all this growth and blah blah blah, but like is that ever going to translate into free cash flow that gets returned? Or are they going to spend it on... And we own Facebook, but are they going to spend it on the metaverse? Or are they... You know what I mean? Or are they going to spend it on something else dumb to try to like keep that going? Or are they really going to return it? So I think that I think that, 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 that kind of cuts both ways. But it does... It's a little bit more salient with the, with the stock trading at, 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 um, at eight times earnings because they're just... There's just more to... They're just closer to the point of needing to return the capital, right? Like, like with a stock that's trading at 50 times, like there's no earnings to really return. So it, it's not going to affect the valuation that much or it's not as near term of a problem. 
Yeah, I think the other thing that's kind of interesting is like with the uh, with something trading at um, 50 times, if they're investing and they can argue that the TAM is being created or growing, like people kind of like that, even if it's not necessarily provable at the moment. Right, yeah. There's at least a story there around why not returning the capital is a, is a good thing. Whereas with a, a company trading at like eight to 10 times earnings, like at least the market is basically saying that there aren't good reinvestment opportunities in the core business. So, you know, it's, it, you know, you have to sort of prove why it makes sense that the market, you know, wants them to prove why uh, giving it back is not the right thing, I think. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So like, um, all right, continue so, yeah, with your, with your yeah, thoughts. Let's continue with the, I think that was a good tangent, but yeah, let's continue. So um, I was playing poker, uh, was making some money, but in sort of 2008, 2009 era, uh, like after, so I've been playing for a couple of years. Well, I've been playing, I've been playing poker for like four or five years by that point, but like just doing it like after college, like purely professionally, I, I'd been doing it for about two years. Uh, but by that point, some of the laws that have been implemented, which made it more difficult for banks to, to fund online poker. So online poker was kind of like a gray area, but then this law came down in 2006, which basically made it illegal for banks to transfer money onto the sites. Like it wasn't illegal to play, but like it was not, banks weren't supposed to allow it basically. That made it more and more difficult. I, I, my theory is like that just made it more and more difficult for like the average Joe to put money on the sites. So you had to find this semi-sketchy Caribbean company called NetTeller, which was like a pre-PayPal or, or not pre-PayPal, but like sort of like similar to PayPal type of solution to get money on the sites. Um, you couldn't just like directly do it with a credit card and, or a bank, you know, link. And so that just made it harder for the kind of the fish, I guess, to, to, to put money onto the site, the bad players or, or anyone really. And so what you had was the money just kept cycling up and up and up to better to better and better players. And by the time, by like mid-2009, I'd say the the games were significant. And it probably also the recession probably didn't help, you know. Um, but the game, the online games were significantly worse than they had been before. Um, and then and then you had the whole the whole full tilt poker fiasco. I don't know if you heard about this, where they basically the the owners were taking my and this is just my recollection. So, um, you know, if you're the former owner of, uh, of, of Full Tilt Poker, don't sue me for defamation, but I'm not, not sure <laughs> this is what happened. But I believe what happened was they were taking out giant dividends um, from, the, from the business. And then like one day everyone woke up and there was just a giant like FBI seal on the Full Tilt Poker website. <laughs> and it just said like, you know, this domain has been, is now the prop, it's like under you know not investigation but like fbi owns this now and so hmm. you had to wait you had to wait literally like years to get your money back i, and I like it's one of those things where i completely forgot about it and then i got like an email um years later that like oh by the way here's like ten thousand dollars um from your your uh your full tilt poker account from like back in the day because they were able That's to... That's a nice email to get. There, there are worse ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the funny thing is that, yeah, you get the email, but it does, the email doesn't have the amount and you have to like click through. So it was like this moment where I was like, did I have... what? Did, how much did I have on there? Um, so yeah, that was, <laughs> that was... That was definitely nice. But I, I started thinking about, um, you know, what my next thing was going to be. And I had always kind of been interested in finance. Uh, 
in college and and and, and earlier. And so, uh, you know, was was kind of I was just kind of thinking about it, still still playing poker, but just kind of thinking about it. And my uh, my buddy uh, Ryan Valentine, my my current business partner, um, was graduating from MIT that summer uh, in you know June of two thousand nine or whatever. His dad had run a hedge fund um, that he eventually kind of returned into a family office in I think the early two thousands, but he had been running it since like the eighties or like early nineties. He had, uh, you know, interned at Fortress and, you know, worked for a couple other, uh, you know, Wall Street firms. and was kind of debating whether to just go to uh, a, a firm like that, like just like a separate Wall Street firm or to go work for his dad. And he was like, his dad it was basically a family office where it was like some administrative people and, and, and his dad doing like all the, his dad was doing all the investing. And I think he, <laughs> he kind of started thinking about it. He was like, do I want to move from Boston to uh, Avon, Connecticut and uh, work one-on-one with my dad in the office every day where it's just like the two of us, you know, 10 hours a day. And he was kind of thinking, he was like, I think he was basically like, I need a buffer, <laughs> but, you know? have like it's fair you know it's a little too much time together you know and he was he was 22 you know and i I mean so it's like you know he didn't want to just be moving back home to just you know languish in rural connecticut um at that age with no with no one to to hang out with so um so he convinced his dad to 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 interview you know some of his friends and whatnot and i ended up getting the, the job i mean that is that's one of the nice things about going to MIT is like, just like your like random friends are just, are, are like smart enough to do like one guy I met at MIT who he, he tried to get me to join his fraternity was Drew Houston, the Dropbox CEO. Huh. And then I have another, uh, a really good friend actually, who um, runs uh, a crypto uh, mining company. They like do crypto mining at uh, oil and like stranded oil and gas sites where normally they would flare the gas. They set up uh, these data centers. Um, oh, that's they, smart. Yeah, and they just they just got an investment from the Sultan of Oman, um, and in a in a like three hundred seventy five million dollar round valued at like a couple billion, I think. Wow, that's yeah, awesome. And he's he's just like a random friend I know from. <laughs> Uh, huh. from MIT. So that's one that's one super nice thing. Auburn does not have that kind of network, but we do have Tim Cook, so we got that going for I us. Mean, yeah, that's that's a pretty good. Um that that's that's not bad. <laughs> I can't call him up though and say War Eagle. That does me no good. Right. <laughs> um Yeah, do they ever have like alumni events uh, and, and things you can go to or not really? I haven't been anywhere that the Auburn degree has really helped me. You know, I mean, in Chicago, there were like 15 of us or whatever. But I did get to meet uh, Frank Thomas. And okay. uh, that was a nice conversation. But, Pretty you know, cool. didn't help me professionally. Right, right. Well, all the more credit to what you've been able to do so far, I guess. You know? <laughs> I so, guess. It's all just your, uh, you know, skills of talking and knowledge and, you know. <laughs> More or less, mostly talking, less knowledge, but I have smart guests, so it helps. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so he basically, you know, he got me the interview and uh, they, he hired me and, you know, I guess the rest is history. Well, the rest is not actually totally history. Uh, It's worth, worth describing. So I was basically the sole, uh, you know, Buffett style value investing analyst on the, the, on the long short portfolio, my 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 buddy was more interested in 
Um, he's more of a programming guy, so he's more he does more of the quantitative uh, stuff, and still does today for us. Um, we run a couple quantitative strategies that are just like pure pure software. Um, but I was like the the you know the equity analyst, um, and so spent seven years doing that from 2009 to 2016, which is a pretty pretty interesting time for uh, you know investing in general, and pretty weird time for value investing, uh, I think. And then in 2016, Steve, our my buddy's dad and our, our old boss was basically like, you know, he, he, he basically kicked us out of the nest uh, and told us to go start our own thing and, and, and uh, very kindly gave us an investment um, to like sort of get, get us that's off the ground. That's awesome. Well, that's sweet. So he basically yeah. helped train you, get you, get your feet under you. And then he says, all right, uh, go do your own thing for, exactly. you know, you've, you birds can soar now. Right. Yeah. Which was, which was awesome. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not too often you get, um, so, I mean, obviously it helps to be, uh, you know, the friend of the son of the guy, right. <laughs> In terms of like him. Yeah. Us. Look, that helps you get the opportunity, but you don't keep the opportunity because of that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, um, you know, that we started in 2016 and, you know, we've been lucky enough to do, do pretty well so far. And the, the strategy that I run is called fundamental value. Um, and it's basically, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's basically, it's a value investing strategy. It's long, short. And what I try to really do is, is try to figure out why I think other people are wrong about whatever stock we're, we're holding. Uh, so I try to really, you know, think a lot about the, the sort of variant perception, which is like this Michael Steinhardt, um, you know, idea. And... Even more than that, we try to. Uh, I like to be able to express our variant perceptions in terms of cognitive biases because you know, I have this sort of theory that, like, and we talked about some biases already, like uh, action bias and sunk cost fallacy and disposition effect and things like that. But, you know, basically, anytime someone's wrong, it's usually, at least if it's in a systematic way, it's because of some type of bias. Like, I mean, it, and it could just be a simple bias towards things that are boring, right? Like, uh, you know, we sometimes call that like social conformity bias or like availability bias where like you're attracted to flat, like things that are like flashy or like things that are like available to the mind. It's a lot more fun to be invested in something sexy. It's more fun to tell people. Right. It's more fun to follow. Like there's a lot of reasons to not be psyched about like a garbage company, for instance. Exactly, yeah. And uh, my, my, my brother is actually... Uh, um, works for works for waste management corporate um and yeah it's like one of the best performing stocks of the past like uh you know few decades and it's because i think it's at least partially it's because i mean and actually it's interesting it kind of goes both ways right like boring businesses not only does no one want to own the stock so they might be a little bit cheaper but people aren't like silicon valley isn't like funding too many uh like landfill i mean there are probably some now because it's not it's like you know probably going to become like a pressing issue you know, like waste disposal and stuff is like probably getting some funding, but it's not like the first thing that like rolls off the tongue of a, um, a venture capitalist that like we're, you're, you know, we're working on trash, right? Yeah, no, the sexy thing is uh, carbon capture, right? So if you're in carbon capture, probably capital going into that. But as far as like the actual storage of garbage, I don't think that's exciting. Yeah. So we, we, we try to think really hard about, um, you know, our, you know, the cognitive bias that might be at work in a particular, in a particular situation and like how that relates to our, 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 our variant perception. 
Uh, of course, you can always you can trick yourself, right? You can like tell yourself a story about what other people are thinking, um, and it's not always you know it's not always you know you're not always right about what other people are thinking. And sometimes people are right. Like people are worried about something, and they were correct to be worried about it. It wasn't like some bias. So, um, but it, uh, we we feel like that kind of helps us avoid some value traps, uh, and you know not just own things that are like strictly cheap, but like have like a, a sort of a second story around, you know, why we think they're cheap and why we think other people are wrong. And, you know, we just hope that that, uh, you know, helps us do a little bit better than, um, you know, a, a value index, for example. And we tend to, we, we, you, we tend to own things that are kind of in the eight to 12 times earnings kind of range, like cheaper than the market, but for what we think is a bad reason. Like, you know, yeah. our, our, our kind of like our de- ideal situation is like it's cheaper than the market for like a bad reason. And maybe it's we think it's actually a better than average business, um, you know, but you and usually ends up being something boring. Uh, you know, although, you know, right now we own there's some, you know, we we own some Netflix and some other things. So it's, you know, it's not all boring stuff. Um, you know, sometimes it's just stuff that people have gotten so beaten down on that they... <laughs> you know, that it's just, uh, it makes them sick to their stomach. So it's, you know, that's at least that's the theory. Do you tend to, um, play around in a market cap? Like, do you, do you target a market cap or not really? We are agnostic to market cap. I mean, I, I honestly, I think personally, I think that that's the, the, the best way to use your smaller size. I mean, I know obviously there's, there's a good amount of data that small caps tend to perform pretty well over time or outperform over time. And actually, that they're cheaper than ever right now relative to to, to large caps. So if 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 ever was the time to, um, you know, double down on you know using your your small size to look at smaller companies, I think now is probably the time. But in general, I think that for my investing style, I like to look at large caps as well. And a lot of times, you can kind of. You, especially with the whole cognitive biases framework, a lot of times you can figure out like what the the kind of the market story is about a stock just because there's more coverage of uh you know of of like a Netflix or a Facebook, and so it's easier to to kind of figure out what like average Joe um, investor or like average Joe like sell side analyst is like thinking about the stock, you know, like in 2018 when Facebook had the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And everyone was saying like, oh, people are going to delete Facebook. And, you know, it's like this whole terrible thing. You know, that's a, that's a story where, um, you know, you were able to see pretty clearly like what the bear case was. And like, you know, it was pretty obvious like why the company was in the news. And it was not for positive reasons. And we were able to just look at the business and be like, wait a second. Half of people in the US, so like don't even know that Instagram is owned by Facebook. So like, yeah. how are they going to, they're not going to delete Instagram. And like, that's where all the growth is. So like, why are we so worked up? Even if people are some people, like 5% of people are going to delete Facebook. They're not deleting Instagram and, and, and people and all the, and the rest of the growth is overseas anyway, too. Right. So like, I mean, obviously there's a huge business in the U S and if half of the people deleted Facebook, that would be a real, that'd be a real thing. But people didn't, people didn't really care. So when you're going through and you're updating your probabilities constantly, like how do you uh, how do you keep in mind like what is junky news versus what signal? I always try to bring it back to um, to the numbers. Like, is this P 
piece of news is there is there really like you're a lawyer right like if i if 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 i'm the judge and the lawyer is and the, the trial is about like whether this stock is undervalued and the one and the one side is in their closing argument is presenting this news article um up, up to try to argue that like your your five year out free cap your your free cash flow estimate five six seven years out is different then like what are you as the or the jury i guess what are you as the judge or the jury saying about this about this is it does it hold water or does it not and you try to and you try to think about like well what would the what would the lawyer on the other side say you know like okay you know and it's just like what i said about facebook like okay it's, it's people are saying they're going to delete it but you know are they really deleting it like like does anyone like okay you see people talking about it on twitter but like are your friends deleting facebook like are, like look at the actual data on usage um and try to bring it back to uh try to bring it back to the actual numbers i mean very rarely i think do news articles that aren't actual earnings results move the needle for me in terms of how they make me think about the valuation very very rarely that makes sense i i've been interested uh i mean i've i've followed netflix i've i've uh it's funny i used to think their strategy was insane now i think it's genius and now that i think the strategy is genius uh the stock has cratered and the news articles have gone from like i read one today that was like well no rational person thinks that netflix could have kept that culture of uh you know like spending and whatever uh forever it's just kind of interesting how like i didn't read that in 2020 when the stock was going up right no one was saying well no rational person believes this is sustainable so i i find it um interesting how often stock price really does drive the tone of what's being said about something oh yeah and i think i think it it, it just it helps me so much to always look back at the numbers like and and like with Netflix, I mean, like they earned $5 billion last year on 33, I'm just looking at Bloomberg numbers, 33.8 billion. And that's of invested capital and that's net income. So EBIT, EBIT was like 6 billion. So that's like almost a 20% return on capital. So like the idea that this is not a good business is insane. Well, somebody's going to come back to you and say, "Well, that's because you're under accounting for the amortization." Totally. So, and, and I and I think that 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 story is one of the reasons why Netflix is so cheap. And so, um, I actually spent. This is actually a gr- great example of when there, when you have a large cap stock that's heavily followed, um, you at least can know when if it starts if it, if the stock craters, you usually are going to know why, right? Like this is not like some stock that's just falling 50% in the forest and no one knows why. And maybe it's because like the CEO is stealing the company or so, or you know what I mean? Or like, like, you know why Netflix cratered and it's because a people are worrying about increasing competition and like growth going forward, you know, and people are, people are worried about whether the net income will translate to free cash flow. And so you can like, I, I love situations like that because I can shoot against it. Right. Like, okay. Okay. So you don't think that, the, the the free cash flow is like going to tra- translate from the net income over time. Let's look at that. Why? Okay. And and if you actually run the numbers, if you look at Netflix, and it, the problem is, it, this is a situation where um, the accounting is a little bit complicated. And it takes a while to like figure out that it's not as complicated as it first seems. 
And so people, their eyes just glaze over and they don't want to like do the, the hard work on it. Um, but I think it's a very interesting example of like where if you like dig into it, you can, you can kind of figure it out. And it's a perfect example of a situation where you, as like a small investor, you actually have just as much information as like Tiger Global or any of these, like, like they're not going to tell me something about Netflix about like, you know, maybe they've done some like survey data in Indonesia or something, but like the core business, like in the accounting, like the accounting is there to be, to be had. Um, and so if you look at Netflix's accounting, well, the main issue is that if you look historically, cash flow has not matched net income, right? It's lagged it significantly. However, during that time period, they were making a gigantic transition from owned or from licensed to owned and produced content. And so um, this is actually, you know, different than whether it's like a sort of a Netflix exclusive. So like Orange and the New Black is owned by Lionsgate or whoever owns Lionsgate now. Um, and but it's a Netflix exclusive during the time period of the contract. It's not like The Office or something. Um, it's like a Netflix show, right? But Netflix didn't produce it. So they didn't put up the capital for Orange is the New Black. They just licensed it for like 20 years or 50 years or something. Probably it will always stay on Netflix because, um, you know, it just, it's, it's, it's like branded as Netflix and, uh, you know, that's where people want it and Netflix can write huge checks. So it's definitely a negative expected value for them to take it off. But anyway, but if you're going to transition for the next show to be completely produced by Netflix, that means you have to put up significant capital over a period of years and you have to do it all before the show gets released. And so what that means is, you know, Netflix has an annual content budget of whatever, 20-something billion. They were transitioning from it being all, all back-end to all upfront. And so they actually went from zero to $11 billion of unreleased production assets. So that's $11 billion they've spent on stuff that hasn't even been released yet. And so what that means is like the whole issue of how long they amortize things for, it's actually a non-issue with respect to the unreleased content because like no one's arguing that they should be amortizing stuff that's not released yet, right? Like obviously none of the viewership has happened. Like they shouldn't be amortizing that. Um, and so if, if you go back and, and, and run the numbers um, with that in mind, you'll see that if you kind of remove that effect, the, um, the, the, the gap between free cash flow and net income is much, 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 much smaller. And um, it's, it's, they basically said it's going away over the next few years. And actually, like, if you, you can run a model, and this is where it gets a little more complicated if you want to go this deep. I mean, you could actually just look at that only and say, okay, I believe in the, in the, in the, in the amortization. Or you could say, okay, let's actually build our own model and see what we think. So if you build a model, I mean, I, I, I estimate that they amortize a little more than 50% of a show, a TV show's value in the first year and like 20, some, 20 something percent in the second year. So after two years that they've amortized like 75 or 76% of the value. And to me, that seems pretty reasonable. And it's, it's, it honestly makes sense to me that that would line up with viewership rates, which is what they says, what they say it does, but that's how they say they amortize it. Um, and so I have, I used to be kind of skeptical because I'm a, I'm a big, cash flow guy, right? Like there's tons of things that I've shorted over the years where they're bullshitting about the net income and you have to go to free cash flow to actually like that's like a that's like a a very standard like short thesis uh presentation is like okay 
net free cash flow doesn't match net income. Like what's going on? Are they just storing things in inventory or whatever? Um, but for them, I think it makes sense. And uh, at the end of the day, like I, tr- I like the numbers check out, and I also trust Reed Hastings to do things well, just in general. Um, and I don't if the num now that the number if you actually look at the numbers, if the numbers check out, I have no reason to doubt them. So um, at the end of the day, it's just a, the stock's trading at twenty times earnings, and they have a they have this advertising opportunity, um, which you know people can people will obviously spin as like oh they're like going back on their core tenant and like they're capitulating the business must be so terrible it's like or you know they're just you know they ran out of other growth options and now they're they're running the numbers and they realize that this is a, they did 1.3 trillion minutes of viewership in the US last year last like you know TV season which is like more than double CBS and they got no ad revenue from that it's a multi-billion dollar business that they're just sitting on, right? And so, yeah, I mean, they, they, it's a pivot. Like they, they said they weren't going to do it and now they did it. But like, I don't know, do you trust Reed Hastings to be able to hire um, ad tech people and along with Microsoft and kind of figure this out and generate like five to $10 billion of revenue over the next, call it five years? I mean, I do. Uh, the other thing that I think is kind of interesting is... Um... I mean, I'm not going to be the right person to push back on you on this. Yeah, 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 I don't definitely. know. I don't own it, but uh, I I wonder why I don't, and I may soon. Um, but like the Amwort argument, I, I I really think it, a lot of this uh, issue and what people are debating now goes back to Charlie Munger's incentives question, and like when the market was rewarding them for subgrowth. I just don't think people were sitting around a table saying, how can we spend more effectively? Right. And now that the market is not, you know, I I think that there's merit to the question. If you drop eight episodes in a day, are you accelerating your amortization because you're burying what is otherwise? I mean, I see it with the podcast, right? Like if I dropped or when I dropped a number of episodes a week, they would, things would get buried. Yeah. Okay. But like, is there a better way to release uh, things? Is there a way to stretch out the cadence of certain spend? Like, these don't seem like as hard of questions to me as how do I get to that scale? That How do I get to that scale seems like the hardest question. How do I get to that scale while minimizing equity issuance seems like an even harder question. And now it's like, okay, well, how do we get profitable now that we're at this scale? Right, which and they've issued no equity. I mean, like, yeah. you know, and, and, and it's and, been insane. And their earnings are real. Like, that's the thing people forget. Like, like they don't do the whole, um, they're famous for not really doing stock comp. I mean, like, okay, like on a, for a, a Silicon Valley tech company um, that does 30 billion of revenue, like the average one that with that, you would probably expect them to be doing like two billion a year of stock comp or something, and it's like, uh, it's four, it's four hundred million. You know what I mean? It's not like a material. It, 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 they don't talk about adjusted earnings that adjust that out. Like five billion is like taking that out, and it's you know that's it's 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 a real number. Um, so yeah, and I, I, yeah, I completely agree with you about um, you know optimizing spend like. It was a land grab for a long time. And it's become clear now, actually, that the land that's being grabbed is not as large as people thought maybe it once was. And so, you know, obviously, that's a, 
that is a reason to sell off Netflix stock some amount, right? Because the, the pot of the gold at the end of the rainbow is like not as, probably not as big as maybe they thought. However, it's also a reason why competitors are going to struggle to invest as much to keep up, right? Like, I do think that the streaming industry is as a whole going to start to move a little bit more towards um, profitability and, uh, you know, because it's obvious that like, well, if Netflix is like stalling out at like 250 million subscribers, then, you know, it makes a little bit less sense to go out and spend and like triple, quadruple our spending like year over year and just like fund gigantic losses. So I think there could be some positives, both from yeah internal budgeting as well as the effect on competitors. Oh, I think it's, uh, I mean, I think it's a certainty. I think we're on the right side of the capital cycle. I just don't think the headlines have come out yet. Yeah. Um, and maybe they have through layoffs and whatnot. So, okay, right. so you get yourself to this stage. How do you think about like how good this set of cards is for lack of a better term? And like, how do you think about, um, you know, like bet sizing? And, uh, you know, when I, when I pinged you, I said, I'd like to talk to you about um, how you think about um, position sizing and managing a position throughout ownership. Um, so I, the way I frame Netflix and push back if you disagree, but, uh, you know, leader in its category, uh, growing cash flow, reasonable current valuation, you know, is that is that like a pair of kings? Is that a pair of jacks? Like what? Where are we on how attractive this is? And how do you think about betting that? Yeah, so the way the way I bet things it's obviously all opinion. Yeah, by the way. right, right, right. Yeah, this is this is not financial and advice. entertainment. If you yeah, if you want financial advice, you got to sign a contract. Um, That's right. This is not financial advice. This is just us thinking out loud. Hopefully well. Um, Correct. <laughs> So bet sizing is, is definitely an art. Um, I, I, I do think that there is some slightly weird uh, attempts to make it into more of a science than it, than it really, I, I think, can be. Um, you know, like, obviously, there's, there's the Kelly criterion, which talks about, um, you know, optimal bet sizing in like a very strictly uh, known framework of probabilities and outcomes. But the Kelly criterion doesn't really apply to investing because you never really know what the, the probabilities are. And it's actually similar to poker in that way, right? Like if you're in a hand and you know you have pocket aces, I mean, obviously, if you get your, po- if you get your money in all in before the flop with aces, you can kind of have a good idea about what your odds are. But if it's on, but if it's on the flop, like you could already already be beat or like drawing dead. So you just don't know what the probabilities are. They're they're, they're depending on, um, you know, the person that you're playing against. Uh, you know, whether they're a tight player or a loose player, you just never quite know. So you always have to be like way way more conservative than like a, a Kelly criterion would um, would maybe imply. And so for me, um, this isn't super scientific, but uh, I mean, part of it's based on part of it's based on math. So if you look at the the volatility of a portfolio that has uh, 500 names and one that has 15 or 20 names, they're not that different. Like the vast majority of the benefit from diversification, statistically, if you start with it, like with one position, it, it, the vast majority of the benefit uh, comes between one and 10 positions. 
Um, like obviously the, it's like just, it's just, it's just a, it's an asymptotic thing. Like the biggest benefit is from one to two and then from two to three and then from three to four. And so, um, as like essentially a single person, uh, team in terms of the, the fundamental value strategy, uh, I prefer sort of 10 to 15 positions because that gives me the combination of, you know, each one. Well, it gives me a combination of like, you know, the benefit of diversification and just not like lower portfolio volatility, like lower risk of, uh, you know, severe impairment and still having the ability to actually like know the things that I'm, 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 I'm owning. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit of uh, humility in terms of, you know, because you can always be wrong. Obviously, if you if you if you were always right, you would just own one stock, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. But you know, I'm I'm investing like my mom's retirement portfolio, like my mother. I have like you know my mother in law's money with us, uh, you know, etc. So um, you know, I try to be a little bit conservative in terms of um, you know position sizing. But uh, so you know, we are so our our biggest positions tend to be sort of you know ten to fifteen percent positions, and our smaller positions tend to be sort of five, six, seven, eight percent positions. Um, and then occasionally we'll go bigger. Actually, I, I know you mentioned you mentioned wanting to talk about Twitter. Yeah. So Twitter is one of the few times where we've actually gone up to 20% for an initial position size because that situation actually, I think, is one of the few that does lend itself to sort of like the known... Um, because it's a merger arbitrage situation, the, the outcomes are sort of more known. And it sort of lends itself a little better to a, a Kelly criterion type analysis. Um, of course, if you put the percentages that I think are correct into the Kelly criterion, it'll tell you to put like 80% of your portfolio in, 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 in Twitter um, because it's like equal upside to downside right now, roughly, and probably like 80 plus percent to win. You know, so with those odds, I mean, the Kelly criterion is going to tell you to like go all in basically. Um, but, you know, so we were willing to put a little bit more uh, of, of, of capital into that, uh, into that situation, just because like the outcomes are, are so known. But I think it's, I think there's, um, you know, it's important to stay humble about what you know, and, and, and what you don't know. And so like for the average position, that means for us, like, seven, eight, nine, 10%. Um, but it's, but I think it's, it's super hard to compare, because it's like, and what we do is what I do is I do like estimated IRRs for every single position. So I can kind of like stack rank them in terms of like what I think the, the IRR is. But it's just such a it's such a guess as to like, okay, is my is my level of conservativeness really the same for all these stocks? Like, is my level of knowledge really the same for all these stocks? Like is the edge cases, you know, like so it's it's hard to know. But that's that's what we do. Well, I appreciate that answer. That's very, uh, it's very honest to say it's hard to know because that's how I feel as well. And maybe that's just uh, me saying something's honest because I agree with it. But well, I think that's reality. Yeah, there's and there's a lot of bullshitting in the investment world about how easy it is to know things. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everyone knows that their investment strategy and their choices are good when they're winning, and everyone knows that like they're just going through a bad period when things are going against them. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, you know, like someone posted like like a, a graph of uh, Fundsmith's um, free cash flow yield chart where it's, it went from 5% to 2.5% over 
over a period of like five or six years prior to prior to this year. And this year it's gone from you know two and a half percent to like three point something. And obviously the reason why that happened is because the valuations were getting higher and higher on his stocks. And now they kind of went in the opposite direction this year. And of course, and and the joke and like the joke was like, oh, this is I I forget what the I forget what the chart was on the on the way down, but it was like, you know, it's like uh like temporary multiple compression and like our businesses are so great that like they'll all they'll all end up doing fine well when the when the yields are going up i.e the prices are going down but you know but when the when the yields are going down and prices are going up it's all just well the businesses are great so of course uh you know of course they're turning higher valuations they always should have been more highly valued um yeah I mean, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens over the next five years. I mean, it always is, but um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I I'm just still waiting know. for. I, I'm still waiting for the. I think Kotu um, maybe said something similar to this, but I mean, so few people stepped up and said, like in these Q2 letters, they stepped stepped up and said, "Hey, you, we should have sold at the top," like. Valuations in hindsight, valuations got really out of hand. We're not going to make that mistake again. Like blah blah blah. Like they just, I don't know. They just all they just all say like, oh, our companies are still doing great, and like not even really mentioning that like there's this other thing called valuation that you, where your companies, yeah, your companies can be doing great, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're a good purchase at that price. Yeah, I the the um. I think the thing that's tough where I've gotten myself on this uh, issue is I I think that that's true. Uh, what you just said is true. I also think that like people have mandates and to step out of like quality investing to go into cyclicals or something, I might argue uh, would be outside of the scope of a mandate for many managers. Right. And that's that's probably on the allocator to be pulling money from one manager and and diverting it to another. So sometimes I think when you read these letters, uh, there's a lot that goes unsaid. And the more I'm in the industry, the longer I realize. Yeah, totally. uh, probably the heroes at the top are are somewhat smart and somewhat in the right factor. And, right. Uh, you know, take everything with a grain of salt. Yeah. And I mean, it, it definitely, I mean, allocators have a tough job. They have a tough job for sure. But I mean, they completely just incentivize people to, to to do exactly what you said, which is stick to the strategy, like stick to the marketing pitch, um, stick to the mandate at, at at all costs, because that makes their jobs easier. It doesn't lead to higher returns, I don't think. Yeah. It, I mean, it might, but it, 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 I mean, it definitely hurt them this time around because, like you said, like you like how many how many shops have a mandate of um, buy what you think is cheap or buy, buy whatever's undervalued because, because pension funds, they want to know like, okay, we have hundred million dollars. We don't want, we have $500 million invested in like these growth funds. We have uh, $300 million invested in these value funds. And like, they'll tend to have like opposite correlations and there's benefits for the pension funds to be able to do that sort of analysis, um, to sort of, you know, not have everything hit shit the bed at the same time. Right. Because, uh, but it, requiring that of the manager definitely decreases the the um the opportunity set right and i mean yeah. and there, 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 then there's definitely worlds where like tying yourself to the mask in that way uh removes some t- temptation to 
be a little bit more, uh, I don't want to say, I don't know, like flighty or like, because I mean, for most good strategies, it does make sense to just stick it out for a long period of time, like regardless of what's going on. Um, and that's what that, that's what the, the mandates are really trying to fight against, right? Like, like, you know, they're trying to fight against people um, just doing things on a whim and like not sticking to, I mean, what they're really hopefully fighting against is the, is the manager's desire to do the opposite, which is like pull out at the bottom. And like, you know what I mean? Like at least at, at least with the mandate, they can say, listen, this is what you're paying us for. We're going to keep doing it. And usually that is the correct decision, right? Because like the stocks are cheap now, right? Like the, the strategy is maybe cheap. Um, but unfortunately, you, by doing that, you kind of tie, you do kind of tie their hands at the top as well. Cause they can't just come in and say, well, yeah, this has been working for a long time, but that's exactly why it's expensive now. And yeah, and, and, and we should do something else. So it's, I can see why allocators do it, but it's uh, at the top, it really hurts the funds that they're the underlying funds that they're invested in, I think. Yeah, Jim O'Shaughnessy has talked about this on his pod where like momentum was just ripping and and somebody came in and they were like, yeah, we want to allocate to your momentum strategy. And he, he said, well, that's interesting. I'm not right. I'm actually drawing money out of it and putting it into like small value. Right. But, uh, you know, that's uh, that's somebody that studies markets all the time versus somebody that's just looking at heat chasing. Yeah. And that's actually one reason why I like having our kind of like pitch be something other than like, we just buy value stocks. Like, like, you know, where I have this, you know, the idea is like, okay, cognitive biases and like variant perception and like trying to think about what other people are getting wrong. Because hopefully that allows me to, I mean, it will hurt me trying to raise money with a lot of institutional allocators who just want to like put you in a box. Um, But at least for the, it gives me a little bit more flexibility uh, for the people that do invest with me because it allows me to, you know, to take on opportunities wherever they are, whether they're like cement companies at four times earnings or Netflix at 20 times earnings. Cement company at four times earnings. Interesting. No, I'm just, I, just, I like the idea of that. <laughs> I, I just made that up. But like, that's, I feel like, yeah, well, that's, that's like, like the canonical, uh, like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So I was talking to our mutual friend, Elliot Turner, yeah. about Kelly betting. And uh, something that he said um, is, you know, what a lot of people don't think about is if you take the bet off prematurely, it, it messes up your Kelly formula, right? Because your risk reward has been truncated. Um, how, do you have any thoughts on that? Not that I need to have you in some random debate with Elliot, who's not in the no, room. But I, I, when he said it, I thought it was interesting. He, I mean, he is right in the sense that if you... So let's talk about the Twitter deal, right? Um, let's assume for a moment that the upside is 54.20 and the downside, just to make the upside even to the downside, call the downside 22, stocks at 38. So upside is 16, downside is 16. Um, if like on a temporal basis, if you think that like it, the um, the upside it was, is unlikely to occur, like let's say you think they're not going to settle the case, like they're going to go to trial. So the upside is like probably, six, you know, some number of months out, right? Like the trial's in October uh, and or at least unless he gets wins today, the right to, to put it, push it back. Um, and then there's an appeal and that takes a couple months. So you're talking like December, at least maybe January, February, who knows, um, before you get the 5420. Now, let's say you also think that like there's there's uh, 
some time, like the, the time between now and then has the potential for there to be like negative surprises. If like, for example, uh, Twitter's Q3 earnings are so bad that the banks call, declare a material advert, you know, they declare that like there's material change and they can get out of their contracts or something. Um, or the whistleblower, which or, or the came whistleblower, out, right? Exactly, or the whistleblower. If you allow yourself to be exposed to those negative surprises, but you then sell the position in November before you, or sorry, but you know, in in like end of September before you can like, re, before you ever had a chance to realize the upside, then yeah, you can kind of, and I don't know that any of, I don't know that these assumptions actually apply to Twitter, but this is a thought, thought experiment. Um, you kind of are cutting off your upside potential without really uh, decreasing like the downside that you kind of risked al- along the way, potentially. So yeah. I would kind of agree that um, that there's the potential to ch- for the upside downside to change depending on you know how, how long you hold it. That being said, for the average stock, um, where like I'm not really a big believer in Kelly betting for the average stock anyway, uh, because you're, the, the upside downside is not really known. Um, you know, I'm not sure how much that makes sense because, um, and even in, even in the Twitter situation, right? Like the market eventually is a weighing machine, but it's you know people are voting on what they think the outcome is going to be, and there's definitely potential for like upside surprises along the way that don't involve the court case, right? Like today is a good example. There's here, you know, we're recording this on uh, September 6th, uh, 2022. And there's a, there's a hearing where the judge is going to decide a, a bunch of things probably soon um, with respect to the case that if they all go in Twitter's uh, direction, it's going to, could, could speak to the judge's, you know, kind of overall opinion of the case and the stock could trade up, you know? So yeah. I, I, I think it's, I see what he's saying. I definitely see what he's saying. Although I think in practice, it's hard to know it's sort of harder to know how much upside versus downside you're giving up by cutting a position short. Yeah. And I guess, I guess that the way that you can, uh, reconcile, uh, maybe trimming a position and also, um, what he's saying about the Kelly bet is as the price goes up, uh, your risk reward is sort of changed. And that would tell you that all else equal the Kelly would mandate like a lower portion of your portfolio should be bet in that way. So you could be trimming and following Kelly if you're reducing your size. Totally. I mean, I mean, and just separately, like, yes, if you trim early, you might be changing like the risk reward of some bet that you made six months ago with this money. But that's actually irrelevant because what's before you now is a new bet with new prices, a new timeline. Right. And so, yes, you changed the risk reward from back then. Um, but who cares? Because that's not the bet. You're, you're not making that bet anymore. You're not presented with that bet. Right. Like you don't have the chance to go back and, you know, buy Shopify at two dollars or something five years ago. Like you have to be you have to, you know, bet on the price today. So I completely think it's fine. I don't, I don't think, you know, it's just that there's a new even if you are doing Kelly, there's just a new Kelly bet there's just a new Kelly calculation that you have to do today. And so you're completely right that it's dependent on where the stock is trading and you know what the upside and downside are from today. That being said, there's a huge bias towards selling too early, which is something to always something to think about. And like what I honestly, what I try to do is, you know, being a value investor, there's this tendency to have a forecast originally. And you're buying the thing, it's eight times earnings. And now it's at 
14 times and you're like, okay, I'm out. It's no longer cheap. Based on my previous forecast, I wouldn't have thought it was cheap at 14 times earnings. So therefore, it's not cheap at 14 times earnings now. Um, and I'm going to sell it. Um, but yeah, but there's a bias for selling too early. And so what I, what I try to do is on the way into a stock, I'm trying to be super conservative. Um, but once it's, if it's working in my favor, I try to increasingly sort of make forecasts that would uh, allow me to allow me to hold it basically. Like, hmm. like, like the, 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 like the hypothesis kind of the, the kind of like default hypothesis in my view kind of changes a little bit. Um, and it's only because of this cognitive bias. If that's, if this cognitive bias wasn't there, I don't think this would be correct, but the cognitive bias is, uh, you know, towards selling things too early. And, and, and some people, they, they fight that by, by just saying never sell, right? Like that yeah. never sell exists because people are trying to fight a bias. I think if, if it's done if it's being done with any thought at all, because <laughs> it's that's yeah. also not entirely clear. But but well, like Chris Cerrone at Acre, that guy. Thinks, yeah, for right? sure, for sure, so for sure. Yeah. So for the per- for the people so. that are thinking about it, um, for the pre- people that are thinking deeply about it, uh, I I think never sell is being done to fight that bias. And so what I try to do is I, I don't quite do never sell, but um, if it's working in my favor, I just try to be conservative in the sense of not underselling the, the, how well the company's been doing. Like, so if the company's been doing well, like giving them full credit for that in my projections and really seeing if there's a way for me to kind of hold on to the stock. And sometimes there's not. Like straight up, yeah. like sometimes there's not. Uh, and, you know, and then, you know, you just have to sell and you just have to pay the taxes and you just have to, you know, get the calls from your, uh, your clients um, where they're very, very annoyed that you're making them pay taxes on something that went up five, 7x or whatever, which is something that, happened, <laughs> that literally happened to me. <laughs> well, taxes are very annoying, but if, they, uh, if they're long term, they're less so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd be fine paying taxes on a seven bagger, by the way. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, I would hope that most people would be. But um, for some people, it's just easier to understand the check that they are sending to the IRS and feel that pain rather than like remembering what their account balance was the year before or what, you know what I mean? Yeah. So how did you get the uh, cojones to short the meme stocks or were they the meme yeah. stocks or were they just the really overvalued? So, ones? so we, we started, we started in like late 2020 with just really overvalued stuff. Um, and so, I mean, honestly, at my old job, we did a lot of short selling. So it was a long, short portfolio. Um, and yeah, I spent a lot of time on, on shorting. Um, you know, my, my old boss was, was pretty bearish at, at, at various times and, you know, made a bunch of money calling some stuff that happened in 2008, 2009 correctly. And so we kind of always had this, um, a little bit of a bias towards like, you know, shorting and seeing, seeing, uh, uh, the potential downside in things, um, which didn't always help us, but it definitely uh, is a good way to think. I think overall, even when you're even when you're trying to go along something, but but anyway, so I kind of got a little bit disillusioned at my old job with with shorting because probably between 2013 to 2016, like more and more, any kind of obvious short would have high borrow rates 
and or would just be difficult to borrow or just wouldn't be there in enough liquidity. Like what Jim Chanos does is extremely difficult because um, because of all that extraneous thing, all the, those extraneous things you need to manage to run a, a, a short portfolio. Um, that isn't just like picking the stock. It's literally like, how much is this going to cost me to short it? Like, am I going to be able to stay short? Is there going to be a squeeze, etc.? So I kind of shied away from shorting when, or doing much shorting when we were starting this business because I was a little bit disillusioned with it. It's just very difficult. And because like we were starting kind of starting from scratch, like we were trying to start a business and you know, I was I just thought it made more sense to focus on the long portfolio. And like nothing seemed that outrageously valued. Like, you know, we thought we incorrectly thought for a while that like value stocks were pretty cheap relative to their prospects. Um, and that that, you know, at least I mean, for our our stocks did pretty well, but like overall value did not do well. So that that kind of sentiment definitely turned out to be wrong for a few years. But then in, in late 2020, we were just, I mean, like summer, fall 2020, we were just looking at all the COVID winners and like all the other growth stocks and just being like, this is insane. Like, this is completely insane. I just can't, like, I remember thinking like, I just literally can't not short these things. Like, I'm sorry if it fails. I don't know what to say. Like, I just can't not do it at this point. And I don't know, that's like not really a good, um, but it was just all based on the valuations, right? I mean, you had, and like the SPAC boom, I mean, there was just all the hallmark signs of kind of a blow off uh, top. And the short sellers had just been so burned over the years that they just weren't, they just weren't there. But like the Robin Hood craze and uh, the SPAC boom and all that stuff um, was just like, it's like when, when it, sometimes when I buy a stock, I, I'll say that like it, the, the valuation and the stock and the story just kind of spoke to me. And I kind of thought that about the SPAC boom and, and the growth boom and all the, all the crazy stuff that was going on like post-COVID. It just spoke to me from the short perspective. I like, felt like it was like hitting me over the head. And so we just decided... I think it was like probably September or something 2020 to like put that trade on. And honestly, it was pretty painful for about six months. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you could have been years earlier. Like what I actually, what I would thought, I, like when I was putting this, this, this on, I was thinking to myself, David, I, what happened to David Einhorn's portfolio and his shorts over the years was both, was both the reason to not put on this trade and the reason to do it. Because, huh. because, exactly what happened to him is and his shorts was the reason to not put it on because like, you know what, there are great companies out there and they surprise you to the upside and Jeff Bezos and Reed Hastings and all these people are actually amazing and shorting them is very dangerous and, you know, can, can really hurt you. However, that like a good thing can be taken too far. Right. And like, that idea had been taken so far that it was actually very difficult to lose over the long term, like shorting the things in 2021 that, 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 that we shorted, I think. Um, and so, uh, and like so many shorts would like look to like a guy like David Einhorn and his results and be like, yeah, see, this is why we don't short anymore because it's like, you're just going to get annihilated. Uh, that yeah. created like a, 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 that, that created just a gigantic opportunity, I think, to kind of do the opposite of that. Um, and so, and so that's what we did. And like, when you put that on, um, I mean, I know nothing about running a short book. So, I mean, how, how much brain space does that take to make sure that like, 
things aren't just moving up parabolically against you? Or is it one of those things that you're like, the short gets more attractive as that happens? It just seems... Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the difficult thing... Well, okay, let's talk about 20, in 2020 and 2021. I mean, honestly, those valuations that we were shorting things at was were so ridiculous that like it did not take a lot of brain space to figure out that like Virgin Galactic, SPSCE, and like half of the other SPACs just didn't need it to be shorted. Um, it, so as far as like figuring out that, that these things should be shorted, that didn't take a lot of brain space. Um, it does take some brain space to keep track of all these smaller positions and sort of think about like when you should be trimming them. Because I mean, yes, if a thing goes from, if a thing doubles for no reason, it does, or no reason that you can figure out, it does potentially make it a better short if it's just like pure air, like pure hot air. However, you can never, again, like we're investing like my family's money partially. I'm not going to like risk losing like 20% of capital on like a single position. So, um, so like if something goes from, you know, like uh, if it's like a two and a half, if it's like a 2% position and it moves against us to a 5% position, like it more, like it goes up two and a half times. We're going to think heavily about trimming that like regardless of the valuation, because we just can't risk it. We just can't risk it. And that's the hard thing about shorting. Like if if you're not, if you're not decent on the timing, like you can get carried out just because of that factor, right? Like, you know, um, and so that's why, like, that's why it took us so long, honestly, because like we were thinking things look, looked kind of overvalued in 2019, 2018 as well, but like it just didn't quite make sense. And then we're all like kind of the hallmark signs. Um, but uh, yeah, these days, I mean, things are, things are a little bit less obvious, but I mean, you know, you still got GameStop at what, like a, what's GameStop at 8 billion or something valuation. Um, and so I don't think, you know, the, 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 yeah, 7.6. I mean, the, the, the brain space to figure out whether that's a short is required is zero. Like, you just have to have a, a functioning brain, I think, to know that that's a short. Um, but, yeah. But, yeah. Un- unless, unless they like do something where they ape it again or whatever, you know, and then you're like called out of it or whatever. Yes. Yeah, so that is the risk. Um, that's the risk. That's the risk. I mean, I'm shocked that it's still trading where it is, um, although it is down 10% today. That's nice. Um, as it deserves to be yeah it deserves to be 50 percent lower minimum yes for sure um i mean the market cap in 2018 was 1.6 billion <laughs> yeah and sales that's crazy and sales was 20 percent higher and they had positive and they had a billion of ebitda so um yeah it deserves to go insanely lower but uh you know you do have to manage the position because yeah you can lose lose a lot of money covering between when it goes to 5% and then covering again, then covering again. Um, but I think, I mean, the shocking thing about GameStop, I mean, you look at the history of the markets, like usually the thing that happens once that's like really crazy, it doesn't just like immediately happen again, right? Like, yeah. like so the fact that GameStop went from, uh, you know, I mean, on the so the stock had a split. So right now it's at 25, but it went from, you know, $2 to 80, and then, Jeez. yeah, it went from $2 to 80 and then all the way down to $10 and then it went back to 70 all by all, all in 2021. That's crazy. 
Um, and so it had this huge, it, they actually did do it twice. They did it like two or three times now. Um, so that is a risk, but I think as time goes on, it kind of, you know, it becomes less of a risk that they're able to have it be, to have it go like up quite as high. Um, just because like every, the more people know about this game and, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just a little bit difficult to try to get it quite as high, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. The only one that I continue to be mad at for missing is Robin Hood. But I also think that there were a lot of reasons for me to stay away. I was a tad too emotionally connected to that one to to believe that I was seeing it clearly. But man, like when I was when I was digging in on that thing, I was like, this is just DraftKings. It's just a casino masquerading as a financial product. And, and you know what? That is that is a thesis that has worked a few times. Um, like 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 DraftKings was a a different uh, it was a regular casino business masquerading as like a different casino business i think and then you had and, <laughs> yeah. then, you had, and then you had uh um skills i don't know if you heard of this stock um but they they were a a gaming company or they are a gaming company where it's like you you theoretically like you're you like do like real money gaming they, they basically they tried to make it like they were e- an esports company, um, mm. but it turns out they were just a gambling sh- shop. So like literally, like the idea was like you would uh, bet twenty dollars against uh, to play Tetris against your friend or something, and they were claiming that that was like esports. <laughs> okay, that works, I guess, in in uh, today's world. But uh, I will. And that's an example. That's an example of like a, something that we shorted. Like that was a seven point four billion dollar valuation on two hundred million of revenue and negative ninety million of EBITDA. That's crazy. That was a seven on December 2020. 2020 that was a seven point four billion dollar um, valuation, and today it's five hundred million. That's nuts. Yeah. It's wild how uh, it's it's wild how it can happen. Uh, have you heard of Phase F A Z E? Uh, yeah, the like esports gamer guy. Yeah. What is he? What is he uh, what's his game? I forgot what he plays. I don't know, but I think that that carried it carried north of a two billion dollar value. Oh, it's down twenty two percent today. Oh, that's the clan. Oh, interesting. Right, right, right. I've heard of this, but I thought it's a Counter Strike clan. Oh my. Wow, yeah, that's uh, that's down from nineteen. I thought it was like an individual. I thought it was an individual. No, yeah, there's just a there's a guy that I follow that was like, this is a terrible uh, valuation, and then I then I pinged him and I was like, I think it's like, am I understanding this correctly? And he was like, yes, and I was like, yeah, that seems like a good short. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, could you short that? Was that or no? Was that? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. I don't like check into the borrow or oh, anything they, like oh, that. Oh, that, you know? that's a publicly traded thing. Yeah, man, F-A-Z-E. Wow, I did not even know that. See, that, that shows you how much, how many crazy things are out there. I've never even heard. I've never it's did. still got a billion-dollar valuation. Wow. If this data feeds, right? No, no, no. Yeah, that's what Bloomberg says, too. I don't know what you got, but... Yeah. The short interest is 99.4% of the float. That's a lot. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. I don't know, man. It's wild times. I, uh, you know, I guess... It was funny when it was going on. I saw some of it. I missed some of it. Uh, I I wrote down how I felt through a lot of it. So I think the next time that I can actually like feel greed inside my body, I'm just going to force myself to sell everything. It's hard though. I mean, it's that that isn't 
both an advantage and a curse that you kind of have as a um, someone that's like primarily. Would you do you have clients or you just manage your own money? No, it's just me. yeah. So that's kind of an an advantage that you have as like just you know managing your own money where you can you can do that and no one will. There's no one to like answer to about like why <laughs> you know. But the other thing that I wrote, you know, in in the middle of the time is like, yes, I think a lot of these returns have been pulled forward, but I'm not I mean, you know, some of this crazy stuff I I did not I think I vocally didn't like as a basket. But, you know, like something like Charter at 800, uh, which I sold, but I got into Altice. So that was dumb. Um you know, I was like, I just don't see how the stock does well from here. On the other hand, like your opportunity cost is every nothing was like really cheap, except for like energy. People are screaming at their headphones saying, you know, energy and commodities. But I don't I've never known how to play that game very well. I, and honestly, I, I actually don't know. I don't profess to know how to really sell stocks like I 90 percent of the time I I'm trading into something I think is better. Yeah. Our like gross exposure will vary a little, well, does vary, but for the most part, um, you know, when we make changes, it's like, it's, yeah, it's just swapping, it's swapping one thing for the next because it's just so much easier to compare what I think the return is going to be on some new stock than it is to just like try to think about like what to do with cash, you know? Well, that's what I think Munger would say to do, right? Is you have uh, security that's your opportunity cost and you weigh everything against that and then make your decisions based on opportunity cost. And, and for us, we, we have a little bit of an advantage. I mean, advantage depends on you know what the market's going to do, but like we can kind of express our view on how long we want to be by shorting things. Yeah. So that's kind of nice. So yeah, so we'll tend to do... I mean, that's basically what we did. Um you know, in 2020, as we decided, like, yeah, A, we want to short all these things, but, you know, and B, that'll help us not be quite as long, right? Yeah. So you'll, your gross exposure will move based on how short you want to be on average. Uh, yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. Net exposure, but yeah. 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 yeah that's, yeah. That's, what I, mean. yeah. I don't know why I said gross. My bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, I want to let you uh, get out of here and prepare. So if there's anything else that you want to talk about, but I know you got a big, big afternoon of watching, uh, some fireworks with Elon. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, I had a, a, a friend joke that they were going to turn it into a drinking game, which sounds, <laughs> which sounds uh, kind of nice. Um, it's going to be interesting to watch, man. I, I feel like I, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills because one, I think a bet on specific performance. I mean, you've got the richest man in the world with the best legal counsel negotiating against a multi-billion dollar public company with the best legal counsel. Like if this contract isn't enforceable, right. then like what is? Yeah. And of course he would, of course he would argue like the contract is enforceable and that's why the clause in the contract that says that we can get out if they made material misstatements, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's so, it's, it's so transparently, it's so transparently a pretext. It's just so obvious. Like nothing has ever been more obvious. Well, and if you watched him on Twitter and watched in real time, it's just so hard for me to believe that that's an honest assessment of the situation. It's blatantly lying. He's blatantly lying. It's like, as, as Matt Levine said in one of his emails, it's like, it's important to remember he's lying here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, that's he, right. He, he, he said, it's like, I tried, to exp- I tried to explain it to like, you know, a family member or something. I was like, okay, let's say I was wanted to buy your house. And I was like, you know what? 
this house, like it's a good house, but it could really use a new roof. You know what I mean? Like the roof, it's got some issues. We're going to fix it up. It's going to be an amazing house and everyone's going to love it in a few years when we fix the roof. Then you sign the contract and the local real estate market tanks and you and you try to rip it up by saying, you know what? You didn't tell me how shitty this roof was. Yeah. Turns out right. the roof is actually pretty bad and I did not know how bad it was. I've never been up on the roof, but you know I, I'm pretty sure it seems bad from here. Like what? Well, not just that. You specifically said I don't need to go up on the roof and and check it out. Like I'm cool with you the house. You go up on the roof, and I said, "Nah, it's fine. It's fine." Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. It's, it's you, the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Nervous at all about the whistleblower? Uh, I mean, you know, anytime you got some, it's not a great development. No, it's not. It's not a great development. But um, we put out a, a, an update on our blog recently, and basically, like if you kind of look at what he's really claiming, if that had come out, like things like that come out like fairly often about these social media companies, like Facebook has had three whistleblowers uh, at least um, that we know about. Um, And I mean, if that had come out on like a random Tuesday, the stock might've moved like 3% or something. Um, because it's just not, it's not directly relevant to like earnings, basically. Like it's not, I mean, you know, okay. Like the, he argued they have some like unlicensed software issues or something like, I mean, okay. Like every, probably every software company has some improperly licensed, like op- semi open source software that they're using. That's just like how things work. Um, and so and, it, and even like the FTC privacy stuff, like that stuff is a little more like directly relevant because they did, you know, they, they just got fined by the FTC for violating um, the consent decree. So it's like very possible that it could happen again. But if you look at the size of the average FTC fines, they're like 100 to 300 million. And it just doesn't move the needle um, for a $44 billion merger or, or, or Twitter. It's not material. It's not a material adverse effect. Um, now, he's going to try to claim that like Facebook was fined five billion by the FTC, and therefore like five billion maybe is material to Twitter, right? Um, and I actually saw Ben Thompson uh, of Stratechery uh, make a similar kind of argument about the about Facebook's five billion and how that could be, you know, seen. It. But if you actually look under the hood, um, Facebook actually got sued by shareholders over that fine. And what happened was, uh, basically, Facebook agreed to a fine that was 20 times larger than the FTC had ever gotten, and was 20 was like 50 times larger than what they would have gotten under under their statutorily maximal uh, forty three thousand dollar per instance fine. So, like, the, the FTC is not just not allowed to fine people whatever they want. It's like forty three thousand something per instance. And the, the the case law dictate has said previously that that's like a per that's a per day fine. It's not like per like person that sends a Facebook message or something. And so um, when they were pitching the 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 settlement to the the federal circuit judge, they actually said, "Listen, this fine is so gigantic; it's actually more than any judge or any judge would have ever given us. It's actually more than statutorily." 
possible and therefore you should approve it because it's so punitive on Facebook. And what and there was a what a couple of the FTC commissioners, the ones that uh, the Democrats that kind of that voted against it because it, it passed by three to two, um, this this fine. They were like, yeah, basically this was like a bribe so that Zuckerberg didn't have to submit sworn testimony and open himself up to personal liability in this in this matter. Uh, and they knew they would have never got five billion if. Um, if it if it went to if it went to trial, so they just like made up this gigantic number so that Zuckerberg didn't have to testify. And so if you look at that, you're like, yeah, there's no way this FTC thing is is really gonna. I know this is a super long winded explanation, but um, yeah, there's no way an FTC fine would be large enough to matter here. And the rest of the stuff is kind of nonsense. Uh, and and he basically admitted that Twitter was right about the bots. Like he admitted that Twitter was correct about the bots. So like. What are we talking about here? I don't know. I I, I I don't didn't find it too compelling. Yeah, I I uh, I was worried about it being a card that I didn't know how to handicap at the time. Um, I uh, I do I do have this weird belief that I think Elon actually does want to own Twitter. Uh, I just don't think he wants to pay nothing, what he said he paid. Literally nothing that he has done so far. I mean, okay. You could argue that like some of the stuff he's done um, could decrease the long-term value of Twitter because like he's disparaging it or like he's in, uh, causing the SEC to investigate or whatever, but not really. I mean, like really the long-term value of Twitter is the platform and the users and the users aren't going anywhere because of this. Um, the, 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 I mean, no offense to Twitter employees, but like the the value is not their, the employees really because like, I mean, Elon wants to go in and cut half of them anyway. That's kind of the whole point. Um, so if, if some of them quit because he said, he said, he tweeted a poop emoji, like, I don't think that really decreases <laughs> the long-term value of Twitter. Um, so if, if nothing he has done has really decreased the value of Twitter in like, for like five years from now, then everything he's done is entirely consistent with like a rational person that does want to own Twitter, but just not at this price. Yeah. Just, like, yeah. That's my read. Yeah. Too. It's just how LVMH did a whole song and dance about how terrible Tiffany was when they were in under contract to buy that company during COVID. And eventually they just bought it for like a 3% discount. You know what I mean? They were like, Oh, you guys managed it so terribly. You managed, it wasn't in the ordinary course. You like blah, blah, blah. They had a French politician send a letter about like why LVMH wasn't allowed to buy them. I don't know if you remember that. Um, no, I don't yeah, look that up. It's hilarious. Um, and at the end of the day, they just wanted a lower price. What is this American trash? We can't have this American trash in that's our right, luxury right. brand. Yeah. We, are, we will dilute the culture of the. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's right. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I have a couple people that I spoke to at Twitter a lot more with the super follow stuff. Some of them have left, but uh, slow execution will cost you a lot. So I. Um, while I like them as people, I'm not sure that the uh, value of Twitter is in the current culture and, right. and all that. So, Agreed. Well, we'll see how it all plays out, man. I'm rooting for you to have a not too exciting afternoon. How's that? I like it. I like that idea. All right. Sounds good. Right. Well, thanks for stopping by. I appreciate it. I'm glad we got to do this. This was fun. I look forward to hanging out in person again. Yeah, man. Me too. Thank you.